Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. Episode 61 of the Bowery Boys, the Pan Am MetLife building. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. Today we're taking a trip up Park Avenue South, and we're going to stop at Grand Central Station, look up, and our podcast is on that tall, some would say, obstruction <laughs> in, the, in the way called the Pan Am Building, today called the MetLife Building. For the purpose of this podcast, we will ref- continue to refer to it as the Pan Am Building, because, you history junkies out there and lovers of old New York, there is actually another building technically referred to as the MetLife Building, Metropolitan right. Life Insurance Tower, that beautiful gold-topped also building. Also on Park Avenue. Right? Also Just on Park Down, yeah, absolutely. About 20 blocks overlooking Madison Square Park. Correct. So we're going to keep with the Pan Am building. It also has a kind of like retro kind of feel to it. Yes, it's very catch-me-if-you-can. But the building is without a doubt an icon in the city, but it's an icon that seems to get a bad rap. I would say it might be one of the most detested skyscrapers in the city. I think there's been many surveys actually saying, underscoring that, that it is the most hated building in New York City. But does it deserve that incredible and envious title? Well, I think we're going to go through the story here and let the listeners decide for themselves. After doing the research, I have to say I've gained a little bit of sympathy for this building. I was going to say the same thing. We've learned a lot, I'd say, in studying this, and it's actually a fascinating story, and it takes us back to a New York City that's going through a kind of identity crisis. Not to mention a not to mention a financial crisis or on the cusp of one. Right, exactly. So I guess we'll get into all of this and more as we study the story behind the Pan Am. God forbid no one know where this building is, but let me quickly situate yes, for our please, listeners. Please. Pan Am Building, now the MetLife Building, is that octagonal, some would say lozenge-shaped... Lozenge. <laughs> it lo- goes down easily. <laughs> lozenge-shaped building, 200 Park Avenue between 44th and 45th Street, and right behind the Grand Central Terminal. It is, at present, the 43rd tallest building in the United States, the unlucky 13th tallest building in New York City, at 880. 
eight feet tall. It is 60 floors. It's basically a gigantic wall of concrete and windows. It's interrupted on the 21st and 46th floor with concrete columns. And so it looks like a gigantic, a monument, if mm-hmm. you will, kind of like 2001 monolith mm-hmm. of concrete. Now, I need to back up a little bit and t- recap our Grand Central Station podcast because this is sort of is a spin-off, if you will, of that. Right, a spin-up. A spin-up, if you will. Grand Central Terminal was built by Cornelius Vanderbilt to house his New York Central Railroad. You know, it went from a depot, which had three very different train lines in 1871. In 1913 is when they built the new Grand Central Terminal building. At that time is when they electrified the tracks and basically put them underground. They had the tracks that had run all up Man- the side of Manhattan, so they buried them all and leased all that ground right above it to developers who built apartments and office buildings. They created Park Avenue by burying the track. Grand Central itself, in the 30s and 40s, this was the heyday mm. of when you had luxury trains that went through here, and you had a massive amount of foot traffic, and everybody was taking trains then. However, by the 50s, and up to the beginning of our story here, the late 50s, Grand Central was falling into disrepair. People weren't taking the train as much. People were flying. People were driving. So by the time of our story, Grand Central itself was in a fight for its life because people were talking about ripping it down. And the railroads were being forced to find a way to really make a profit. The New York Central Railroad, which owned the terminal, was looking for a way to make profit for their stockholders. Meanwhile, Grand Central Terminal isn't just that building, but it's a collection of buildings, which they called Terminal City. Now, they started to sell these buildings off throughout the decades. Now, one of the buildings that they did sell off, the jewel of all of their buildings, was the headquarters of the New York Central. Railroad called the New York Central Building at 230 Park Avenue. This is probably the most handsome building, I can say. It has that beautiful tall tower with the lantern at night. Totally beautiful. Well, you say Park Avenue, but... I mean, it it is the building that you run into if you're coming south. So Grand Central sold this building, actually, to the General Tire and Rubber Company, who renamed it the New York General Building. And then later, they would sell it to Helmsley Spire, which Mm -hmm. is the management business of a certain... Leona. Harry and Leona Helmsley, correct. So they owned it for a long time, and that name is actually affixed onto the building today, the Helmsley Building. So, But it really is one of the most romantic buildings in the city. The New York Times called it the splendid tower that sits like an exclamation point in the middle of Park Avenue. Another quote said, it, they called it the city's dowager queen. Dowager? dowager. <laughs> I know you never get a chance to use that word. <laughs> dowager queen, lording over the city's second most prestigious avenue. After what, Fifth Avenue, I suppose? I think so, yes. I'm sorry, but it's it's just interesting because it does break Park Avenue as well. I mean, that building is located just north of the train station. Sure. And we're going to be getting into criticisms of the much later Pan Am building. People would say, oh, it blocks Park Avenue. But this this building was already doing that. Yes, but it did it with class. Uh-huh. And also, it literally, because it's... a tiara. So, well, it had, it had like a crown overlooking Park Avenue. There was something symbolic and just beautiful about it. But we don't have that anymore to look at when you're well, driving up. Well, it's still there. Well, it is, but then there's this wall behind it. <laughs> so how on earth did the Pan Am building develop? I mean, who had the original idea? Well, you mentioned that the railroad was going through a hard time. The 
Grand Central Station was going through a hard time and Park Avenue was also going through a hard time. Developers were finding that after the war and in the 50s, there was a boom in office space and more businesses actually needed space in the city. And these residences could be ripped down, especially the ones closest to Midtown, Mm -hmm. and turned into big box office towers, which weren't really beautiful, but they were certainly legal to put up and businesses were lining up to get into them. And they could fit thousands of employees pouring more money into the into the neighborhood absolutely you know and everybody wanted to be close to midtown the closer you could get to grand central station and the subway lines that were all around there the better for your office workers and certainly all these companies wanted the prestige of having world headquarters in midtown manhattan and this is where you put them well it was ironic because there was a fear that with the automobile entering the scene and suburban development happening around the city that all of these corporations would be taking off to the suburbs some did naturally and in the 70s and 80s we'd see a lot more of that Mm -hmm. but back in the 50s they were still looking for a midtown address and not only that but they were looking for bigger spaces because if a bigger building came along, give space to an entire company on one floor, there was a real advantage mm-hmm. because suddenly you wouldn't have to run up and down you know, between three floors to get to somebody else's office. This is a recipe for disaster. Do you know where I'm going? Yeah, I think trip? so. <laughs> so the actual story of, I guess, the pre-story on Pan Am is a little bit complicated because there were two developers and different architects involved. The developers were Zeckendorf and Wolfson. Now, they, w- while we're talking about them, they kind of go back and forth with different pitches. So we'll just try to simplify it a bit. But in 1954, William Zeckendorf, he was a developer. He proposed to the New York Central to make some money, tear down the station and replace it with an enormous office tower uh, that's 500 feet even taller than the Empire State Building. And we did discuss this briefly in Mm -hmm. the Grand Central podcast. This is the IMP building. Exactly. 80 stories tall, 4.8 million square feet. And it's just like this big parabola. Is that the word for it? I believe, wasn't its name the hyperboloid? Hyperboloid. I'm not going to forget, I'm never going to forget that as long as I live. (laughs) But they they abandoned the project. Remember, the picture got snuck to the New York Times, it got leaked out, and there was an outcry, of course. Um, So they would later, a couple years later, like two years later, they would come back with this same drawing, but it had gone up to 108 stories. So, so that, that somehow made it better? Just make it bigger? That was abandoned as well. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, so then in 1955, a year later, Erwin Wolfson, who was the head of Diesel Construction Company, and he was mm-hmm. a big developer, and he was putting up office towers all over town. He pitched a smaller tower. Wolfson didn't, said, let's not develop on top of Grand Central Station. Let's develop on top of the land just north of it, between the station and that New York Central building. Right. There was a a little office building there. A nondescript office building, right. Yes. Much smaller. You didn't even really notice it. So this smaller building was actually arranged north and south. It wouldn't block too much of, you know, the vista, but it was still a giant boxy office building. This plan was ditched as well. Um, They just didn't go for it. But just like the other plan, it would be resurrected three years later. So, <laughs> see, they just kept coming back. These guys kept pitching new new schemes. Now, in 1958, they came back with this new design, and it, it was designed by Emery Roth and Sons, designers of dozens of New York City skyscrapers well, I mean, and office towers. Including, uh, most notably, perhaps, is the World Trade Center. 
is one of the buildings that they built. But up until this point, they had been putting these big, boxy, glassy, rather nondescript office buildings <laughs> up and down 6th Avenue and Park Avenue. That, that is an understatement. We, just, we were just flipping through some pictures. And you c- I couldn't even tell the difference between each building. It's funny because you know the buildings. You look at them and you say, oh, right, yeah, I, I know that one. Wait, I know that one. Oh, wait, I know that one. But you don't know where they are. You just know that there's an Obon Pen nearby. None of them are special. Of those, those buildings. I mean, they they certainly made some buildings that were distinctive eventually. But of the number of buildings, that no. They were widely criticized for being too profit-driven. You know, this was an architecture firm that really did their job well. They made their developers happy. They were hired to max out the space on a particular lot that a developer was building on, take the space and fill it with as many square feet of (laughs) office space as possible and make it go as high Mm -hmm. as they could. But they built not for the public or for aesthetic reasons, but they built for speculators. So they came up with a building along with Wolf's that was a 3 million square foot office tower called the Grand Central City Building. Grand Central City. Yes, that was this was the original name of the whole Pan Am project. Exactly. And their plan included actually some innovations. You know, they wanted a helipad um, on the top, a parking lot for 2,000 cars, two theaters, Broadway theaters, a movie theater, and a restaurant. Wolfson, the d- developer, wasn't quite sold because he said, look, we've got this amazing space and we need to do something really distinctive. Also, get the financiers behind us and get the tenants lining up to get in. Well, he did this, I believe. He wanted to legitimize the project because, you know, Emery Roth had their own their baggage. So he decided to bring in two megastars of the architect world, I would have to say. I mean, megastars. Megastars. Their names were, if you, I'm sure you've heard of them, Walter Gropius mm-hmm. and Pietro Beluski. He chose these two. They were icons at the time. They also happened to be professors at the time as well. So it almost added like an academic cachet to it. And they would also be busy, so they wouldn't, they, they wouldn't consume the project with their personalities. Well, and Wolfson thought that they would actually just kind of disappear yeah. after they signed on. He wanted to basically use their names and their imprimatur if you will. Oh, I will. <laughs> to uh, to sell the building to the public. Now, Gropius, to give you a little quick recap on both these men, uh, Gropius was the leader of the Bauhaus movement. He's the considered the father of modernist design. He was actually in his late 70s when he was approached by Wolfson. Beluski, meanwhile, was, a, was also a leading modernist architect. He actually helped lead America into the modernist movement. He designed a lot of, he was, he designed most of his buildings here in the United States. Later in New York, he would also be known for designing the Juilliard School of Music up uh-huh. at Lincoln Center. These two men would be sort of guiding lights to Roth, oversee the project, sort of give, give their stamp of approval, if you will. So Roth was still going to do like the heavy lifting on the design? Pretty, pretty much, but not without these two looking over it and sort of like giving it the thumbs up. So the design that they came up with, the design that was eventually used, could be described a very specific architecture concept. And that concept is called brutalism. <laughs> now you look at up and down Park Avenue and that name adheres to a lot of buildings. To it was, several, yeah. And but it, was, it is a distinct style. It was big in the 60s and 70s. This was one of the first buildings that really popularized it, if you will. This is a branch of the international style, which was big in the 30s and 40s, and we talked about it a little bit earlier in a past podcast during the United Nations podcast. Brutalism is 
is an even more raw and exposed version of the international style. Some of the features are these, you can probably guess the features just by looking at these buildings. Everyone can be an architecture expert walking up and down Park Avenue. These blocky, repetitive forms, uniformity, weighing heavily on exposed concrete in right. specific. A concrete yeah. is a, it not, they're not all built with concrete, but concrete's a very defining material in the brutalism movement. So like the Whitney Museum. The Whitney Museum the is a is a brutalist style building, correct. These buildings usually expose more functional elements, um, which of course make them really unattractive today. Like they don't hide things like air conditioning units, heating units, those types of things are exposed. The buildings usually, and this is, I swear to God, this isn't editorializing, but it, they usually destroy or or just simply ignore historical context of a neighborhood or the surrounding area. You can almost describe it as like a big Lego stuck in just the middle of nowhere. The idea being that these buildings were like fortresses, that they were, it was a protective element. Unfortunately, all of this is aged badly. Most of these buildings are eyesores. Some of them you could even describe as just plain repulsive. Well, I'm, I, you know, I'm being. You're very, not editorializing. Not, of no, no, no. No, but I will say that in the preservation movement, now there is a movement to preserve some of these buildings because we so commonly look at them and say, oh, this is just nasty. Take that thing down that, you know, future generations won't have any examples of brutalism to look but, at. But the Pan Am MetLife building is one of the most famous examples of brutalism in the city. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So Grand Central City, because this is the original name, the construction started in August of 1961. It was completed in March of 1963. took $100 million to build. It's really incredible to me to, th to think of this building springing up where it is, considering all the things that they have to sort of consider as it's, as it's going up. You have close quarters with two older buildings on either side mm -hmm. that really need to be, you know, you could really damage them in a construction work. Underneath, there are trains running that never stops the whole time this building was being constructed. That was one of the conditions to building the building, right? That yeah, absolutely. Interrupt the train traffic. So much pedestrian foot traffic, off. obviously. This is one of the most busiest areas in New York City. 
Um, you had almost 200 engineers working on this building, 7,500 workers and craftsmen and all sorts of people just putting their heads together to make this building. You know, this really, it's, this is, was one of the tallest buildings in New York at the time. It was the tallest office building when it was completed. So you had a lot of challenges with building this massive structure right here in this place, which is really not suitable to be building a gigantic building, yet they did it. And it's refreshing and amazing that there weren't that many accidents. I mean, look at construction today in the city. There's so many construction accidents. and That didn't happen for this. So then why is it not still referred to as the Grand Central City Building? Well, they decided to name the building after one of the tenants that would take up the most room, and that would be the hot airline at the time, Pan Am Airlines. They would take up 225,000 square feet, so they would have the honor of putting their name on the building. It would be affixed on the north and south sides, Pan Am, and their little globe logo would be on the sides. So Pan Am, by the way, was one of the leading airliners of the 60s and 70s. Their slogan was the world's most experienced airline, and in fact, it had been around since 19. 27, so they could say that. Around this time, well known for its stewardesses, or, you know, back, we called them stewardesses back then. We wouldn't call them flight attendants. But right. <laughs> back in the cocktail guzzling days. And- you know, and yeah, and as a matter of fact, you know, the, you know, the, you know, the Pan Am smile. This is an actual term. They call it the Pan Am smile, which was coined because of the stewardesses, this fake smile that you can do by just moving your eye muscles so it looks like you're smiling, Ah. but you're not really doing it. See you on Dinger, I know. (laughs) It's creepy, right? You're not really smiling? (laughs) Did you know, Tom, that the fourth floor had this gigantic computer, an IBM computer called the Panamac? It probably had as much memory as this computer that's helping us out with recording today. <laughs> My calculator in the other room. <laughs> but it was um, it was an early booker of hotel and flight accommodations. Oh my word! I know a little tie into Eurocheapo. Dot um, com. <laughs> so anyway, what I'm trying to say is they were totally at their apex around this time. Hot business in brand new building. So obviously the city must have embraced them, right? Um. Not so much, Greg. The, uh, th- <laughs> yeah, I know. There was criticism from the very beginning. I mean, there's criticism swirling around this entire project, around anything that touched Grand Central Station. Sure. There are many different schools of criticism, too, here. because <laughs> oh, Wow, it's, it's a complex it's, hatred. It's complex criticism because it involves architects, okay, mm-hmm. journalists. It, it involves just, <laughs> you know, the average Joe on the street. Everyone had something to say about this plan. Sunday school teachers. Right. People were up in arms. So there's the criticism of what effect the new tower, the Pan Am Tower, would have on residents and pedestrians. There were people who were upset that it would block the view, like you already said. You and know, it's, be- well, that's founded, certainly. When you compare the photos headed south on Park Avenue before and after the tower was built. It is really startling. It would also block the sky. It overshadows the New York Central building, this beautiful building. It's a giant building outside the grid of Manhattan. So, you know, everybody else has to play by the rules, but this giant tower breaks up the grid. If the building was uprooted and set north-south on Park Avenue or on Madison you wouldn't really notice it as much as you do plopped in the middle of the street, breaking up the grid. Well, it casts unusual shadows onto the street. I mean, mean, there are areas that just never get any sunlight. And it's ugly. (laughs) You know, it's... It's It's not a traditional beauty. 
it's a brutal structure. So people, of course, on the, on the street watching it go up were not really pleased to see that this was what was going up and drawing all of their attention. <laughs> no cheering squad. And then there was the whole issue with congestion in New York City. Uh-huh. People at this time, because of all these new office buildings going up all over the place, people were making a big argument that there were too many people in Midtown. There were too many people going to Grand Central Station, and what we didn't need was another twenty-five to 50,000 people in a giant office building who were going to be crowding into Grand Central Station to get on trains or crowding the streets or the restaurants or whatever downstairs. Well, Grand Central Station didn't need to be more like Grand Central Station, essentially. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And then there were the architects who were upset about it because it created basically an identity crisis within the architectural community. Debates at the New School, in different journals, in the press, just about what is now the purpose of an architect? Because here were two prominent architects, right? Like, really, the leaders, like you said, brought in to work on this extraordinarily commercial endeavor. These were people, Belusky and Gropius, who had written about all these lofty ideals of the architect's role in modern society and, and to help humanity evolve. And here they were working for Roth on the largest office tower in New York City. Like, there was a disconnect here. It's almost like if Judy Dench and Helen Mirren were going to star in the latest sequel to American Pie. It has that equivalence, I'm assuming, in the architectural world. Thanks for breaking it down (laughs) for me, Greg. One of the biggest critics was Ada Louise Huxtable at the New York Times, and she was she would become the New York Times architecture critic. She really assaulted Gropius in particular, reminding him of his responsibilities and of his (laughs) previous writings about the architect's duty and responsibility. And she said, this building is, quote, a colossal collection of minimums and gigantically second rate. (laughs) Wow. The pen is mightier than the sword. Indeed. One reason that the architects were so upset about it was because the materials used were second rates. The developers were willing to embrace the high, lofty ideals of Gropius and Belusky to a certain extent, but in other respects were cutting back. They were using cheaper grades of concrete. And same thing with the lobby. They cut down on the kind of stone and marble that they were using, so it was cheap cheaper grades, and the architects were saying, you should have stood up to the developers when building this and demanded something better. And this just caused architects to wonder what in the world their role was anyway. I mean, if if the size of the building is dictated by the developer and pushing the limits of how big something could be, I mean, what was the architect supposed to do anyway, besides like design the lobby and choose a front door? Well, their their roles were definitely changing in New York, and not just in this building, but throughout the city and throughout all the major cities. Gropius and Belusky fired back, saying Wolfson didn't need to bring them in. Here was a man who was building a giant office tower, and he reached out to the elite architectural community and brought them in Mm -hmm. to be consultants on this project. He didn't need to do that. They could have built the building without them. And they were also, you know, this building was being made for clients who wanted something, and this is a free economy, and people can build what they want to build. So basically, stop whining because it's legal. But the businesses were fairly happy to be there. Certainly. Otherwise, they wouldn't have moved in. But on top of all of this regular office space, they had something, I believe, curious on the rooftop. Well, we mentioned before a heliport had been in an 
early plan, but then with Gropius and Belusky, they never actually included this, but Pan Am did want it to be there, and so Wolfson decided to throw it in anyway, and Roth was willing to go along with it. So they started building the um, helipad on the roof, and were offering a service to helicopter off 25 people at a time to JFK in between four and seven minutes. Sounds like a nice service, but it didn't last very long. No, it only lasted for 25 months, and people weren't happy about that either, because one thing we didn't need were more helicopters in the sky, more noise, more <laughs> congestion, more everything. More reasons to for the for people to bitch about something. Right. right. It reopened in the 70s in 1977, a very fortuitous year in New York City history, 1977. Um, they opened it in February. It was only open for a few months. As a matter of fact, it closed in May, and because of something very tragic and very horrifying, I have to say, happened. Um, on May 16th, people were boarding a helicopter, and it was one of the bigger helicopters, 25, 30 people could fit into it. As some of the, some of the people were boarding, the landing gear gave way, and one side of the helicopter kind of leaned in. Four passengers were killed instantly. Oof. Then one of the blades snapped off and then hurled off the top of the building and then killed a pedestrian on the street. One of the people who were killed um, was a film director by the name of Michael Findlay. He was a pr- producer, director, and actor, and best known for sexploitation films. Ah. So absolutely horrifying accident. Obviously, they shut this down. Things just don't get better for for the main resident of the building, Pan Am. They have to sell the building in 1981. They're still in the building, but they sell the building uh, to... MetLife, Metropolitan Life, the insurance company, for $400 million. They stay in the building, Pan Am does, for 10 more years. Then they go bankrupt and then out of business by the end of the year, 1991. Now, with bankruptcy, MetLife then came in and they popped off the Pan Am letters and they got to put in their own. But there, interestingly, there was a brief movement to try to convince MetLife to leave the Pan Am letters on the building as sort of a nostalgic emblem of, of, a, of an era gone by. This isn't quite the same sort of like movement that would save Grand word. Central or anything. As a matter of fact, it was very difficult to get people motivated. They asked the Municipal Arts Society and they weren't interested. They asked Jackie Onassis, who of course had helped out with saving Grand Central. Along with the Municipal Arts Society. And I mean, she wasn't interested. According to legend though, so some of the letters of the Pan Am and some parts of these letters may, may still be floating around in warehouses somewhere. Some of it, some, some of it was apparently but- they lost the sign. Well, it just got like cut up and you know moved somewhere. Apparently, it's some. Apparently, parts of it are somewhere in a warehouse. I'd love to find out where those are. Parts are in a warehouse. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Met the MetLife moved in, and they are that's currently still on the building. MetLife, of course, in 2005, Met sold the building to Tishman Spire Properties for 1.72 billion dollars, and curiously, the current owners of the building, it's Tishman Spire Properties, and two pension funds, which I find very Mm. interesting. The New York City Employees Retirement System and the New York City Teachers Retirement System all have a stake in this building, curiously enough. We should also mention that after the Pan Am building opened in the 60s, there was another plan by the New York Central Railway to build another massive tower on top of Grand Central Station. For more information about that, you can listen to the Grand Central (laughs) Podcast, which I think we've actually, (laughs) at this point, completely recorded. 
recapped in this podcast, that tower was going to be about the same size as the Pan Am, directly south of it. So really, imagine that, like a block away, just another giant tower right next to the Pan Am. The reaction to that proposed building fired up the public created lawsuits, and eventually led to the Supreme Court, which ruled on the city's right to block the construction in the first place. So so as bad as it can sometimes look, the MetLife building, it, imagine. Could, it could have been so much worse. So Tom, so what is your impression? Do you do adhere to some of this criticism of the building? What do you, what's the modern impression of, of the MetLife building? Well, I think it's a building that so many of us just take for granted now because we're so used to seeing it there. It's hard for me to be angry at that building because it's been here longer than I've been here. <laughs> I have to say this. If it wasn't where it's sitting, it's actually a very striking building, especially in the continuum of these modernist, brutalist buildings in New York City. If you're really to look at it objectively, it's actually kind of a nice-looking building. Well, they didn't need to add the touches that they did to it. They didn't need to pinch it in and make it an octagonal shape. They could have left it a big box. They did add some touches then. So I would suggest, you know, if you're if you're walking around the area and looking, of course, at the far more beautiful buildings like the Grand Central and the Helms, Helmsley to just kind of look up at the MetLife and try to like look at it from a different angle. By the way, um, a fantastic book we, which we use uh, for we some of our details. We are greatly indebted to. One of the sources is actually a book called The Pan Am Building and the Shattering of the Modernist Dreams. So you kind of know the perspective of this book and the author's name. Is Meredith Clausen. In addition, on our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, I'll have a lot of pictures of the building through various periods from its Pan Am days to its newer MetLife days. So thank you for joining us tonight as we spent a few moments appreciating the glories of the Pan Am building. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast.